Kate here, Saints. You're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. The Augsburg Confession, Preface, and Articles 1 through 20. The Augsburg Confession, Preface, to Emperor Charles V, Most Invincible Emperor, Caesar Augustus, Most Clement Lord, Your Imperial Majesty has summoned a meeting of the Empire here at Augsburg to consider taking action against the Turk, discussing how best to stand effectively against his fury and attacks by means of military force. The Turk is the most atrocious and ancient hereditary enemy of the Christian name and religion. This meeting is also to consider disagreements in our holy religion, the Christian faith, by hearing everyone's opinions and judgments in each other's presence. They are to be considered and evaluated among ourselves in mutual charity, mercy, and kindness. After the removal and correction of things that either side has understood differently, these matters may be settled and brought back to one simple truth and Christian concord. Then we may embrace and maintain the future of one pure and true religion under Christ, doing battle under him, living in unity and concord in the one Christian church. We, the undersigned elector and princes, have been called to this gathering along with other electors, princes, and estates, in obedient compliance with the imperial mandate. Therefore, we have promptly come to Augsburg. We do not mean to boast when we say this, but we were among the first to be here. At the very beginning of the meeting in Augsburg, your imperial majesty made a proposal to the electors, princes, and other estates of the empire. Among other things, you asked that several estates of the empire, on the strength of the imperial edict, should submit their explanations, opinions, and judgments in German and Latin. On the following Wednesday, we informed your imperial majesty that after due deliberation we would present the articles of our confession in one week. Therefore, concerning this religious matter, we offer this confession. It is ours and our preachers. It shows from the Holy Scriptures and God's pure word what has been up to this time presented in our lands, dukedoms, dominions, and cities, and taught in our churches. In keeping with your edict, the other electors, princes, and estates of the empire may present similar writings, in Latin and German, giving their opinions in this religious matter. We, and those princes previously mentioned, are prepared to discuss, in a friendly matter, all possible ways and means by which we may come together. We will do this in the presence of your imperial majesty, our most clement lord. In this way, dissensions may be put away without offensive conflict. This can be done honorably, with God's help, so that we may be brought back to agreement and concord. As your edict shows, we are all under one Christ and do battle under him. 
we ought to confess the one Christ and do everything according to God's truth. With the most fervent prayers, this is what we ask of God. However, regarding the rest of the electors, princes, and estates, who form the other side, no progress may be made, nor any result achieved by this treatment of religious matters, as your imperial majesty has wisely determined that it should be dealt with and treated by mutual presentation of writings and calm conferring together among ourselves. We will at least leave with you a clear testimony. We are not holding back from anything that could bring about Christian concord, such as could be effected with God and a good conscience. Your imperial majesty and the other electors and estates of the empire and all moved by sincere love and zeal for religion, who will give an impartial hearing to this matter, please graciously offer to take notice of this and to understand this from our confession. Your Imperial Majesty has not once but often graciously pointed something out to the electors, princes, and estates of the empire. At the meeting of Spire, according to the form of your imperial instruction and commission, this point was given and prescribed. Your Imperial Majesty caused it to be stated and publicly proclaimed that Your Majesty, in dealing with this religious matter, for certain reasons that were alleged in Your Majesty's name, was not willing to decide and could not determine anything, but that Your Majesty would diligently use Your Majesty's office with the Roman Pontiff for the convening of a general council. The same matter was publicly set forth at greater length a year ago, at the last meeting of the Empire at Spire. There your Imperial Majesty, through His Highness, Ferdinand, King of Bohemia and Hungary, our friend and clement lord, as well as through the Orator and Imperial Commissioners, caused the following to be submitted, among other things. Concerning the calling of a council, your Imperial Majesty had taken notice of and has pondered the resolution of a... Your Majesty's representative in the Empire, and of B, the President and Imperial Councillors, and C, the Legates from other estates convened at Ratisbon. Your Imperial Majesty also judged that it was helpful to convene a council. Your Imperial Majesty did not doubt that the Roman Pontiff could be persuaded to hold a general council, for the matters between Your Imperial Majesty and the Roman Pontiff were nearing agreement and Christian reconciliation. Your Imperial Majesty himself pointed out that he would work to secure the said Chief Pontiff's consent for convening a general council, together with Your Imperial Majesty to be announced as soon as possible by letters that were to be sent out. Therefore, if the outcome should be that the differences between us and the other parties in this religious matter should not be settled with friendliness and charity, then here before your imperial majesty we obediently offer, in addition to what we have already done, to appear and defend our cause in such a general free Christian council. There has always been harmonious action and agreement among the electors, princes, and other estates to hold a council in all the imperial meetings held during your majesty's reign. Even before this time we have appealed this great and grave matter to the assembly of this general council and to your imperial majesty in an appropriate manner. We still stand by this appeal, both to your imperial majesty and to a council. We have no intention to abandon our appeal with this or any other document. 
This would not be possible unless the matter between us and the other side is settled with friendliness and charity, resolved and brought to Christian harmony according to the latest imperial citation. In regard to this appeal, we solemnly and publicly testify here. The Chief Articles of Faith Article 1. God Our churches teach with common consent that the decree of the Council of Nicaea about the unity of the divine essence and the three persons is true. It is to be believed without any doubt. God is one divine essence who is eternal, without a body, without parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things visible and invisible. Yet there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are of the same essence and power. Our churches use the term person as the fathers have used it. We use it to signify not a part or quality in another, but that which subsists of itself. Our churches condemn all heresies that arose against this article, such as the Manichaeans, who assume that there are two principles, one good and the other evil. They also condemn the Valentinians, Arians, Eunomians, Muslims, and all heresies such as these. Our churches also condemn the Samosatanes, old and new, who contend that God is but one person. Through sophistry, they impiously argue that the Word and the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons. They say that Word signifies a spoken word, and Spirit signifies motion created in things. Article 2. Original Sin Our churches teach that since the fall of Adam, all who are naturally born are born with sin, that is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin, called concupiscence. Concupiscence is a disease and original vice that is truly sin. It damns and brings eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. Article 3. The Son of God Our churches teach that the Word, that is, the Son of God, assumed the human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there are two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably joined in one person. There is one Christ, true God and true man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, truly suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. He did this to reconcile the Father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of mankind. He also descended into hell and truly rose again on the third day. Afterward, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. There he forever reigns and has dominion over all creatures. He sanctifies those who believe in him by sending the Holy Spirit into their hearts to rule, comfort, and make them alive. He defends them against the devil and the power of sin. The same Christ will openly come again to judge the living and the dead and so forth according to the Apostles' Creed. Article 4. Justification 
Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith or righteousness in his sight. Article 5. The Ministry So that we may obtain this faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. Through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given. He works faith when and where it pleases God, in those who hear the good news that God justifies those who believe that they are received into grace for Christ's sake. This happens not through our own merits, but for Christ's sake. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists and others who think that through their own preparations and works the Holy Spirit comes to them without the external word. Article 6. New Obedience Our churches teach that this faith is bound to bring forth good fruit. It is necessary to do good works commanded by God because of God's will. We should not rely on those works to merit justification before God. The forgiveness of sins and justification is received through faith. The voice of Christ testifies. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The fathers teach the same thing. Ambrose says, It is ordained of God that he who believes in Christ is saved, freely receiving forgiveness of sins, without works, through faith alone. Article 7. The Church Our churches teach that one holy church is to remain forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are correctly administered. For the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere. As St. Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Article 8. What the Church is. Strictly speaking, the Church is the congregation of saints and true believers. However, because many hypocrites and evil persons are mingled within in this life, it is lawful to use the sacraments administered by evil men, according to the saying of Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Both the sacraments and the word are effective because of Christ's institution and command, even if they are administered by evil men. Our churches condemn the Donatists and others like them, who deny that it is lawful to use the ministry of evil men in the church, and who think that the ministry of evil men is not useful and is ineffective. Article 9. Baptism Concerning baptism, our churches teach that baptism is necessary for salvation and that God's grace is offered through baptism. They teach that children are to be baptized. Being offered to God through baptism, they are received into God's grace. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists, who reject the baptism of children and say that children are saved without baptism. Article 10. The Lord's Supper. Our churches teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and distributed to those who eat the Lord's Supper. They reject those who teach otherwise. 
Article 11. Confession. Our churches teach that private absolution should be retained in the churches. Although the listing of all sins is not necessary for confession, for, according to the psalm, it is impossible. Who can discern his errors? Article 12. Repentance. Our churches teach that there is forgiveness of sins for those who have fallen after baptism whenever they are converted. The church ought to impart absolution to those who return to repentance. Now, strictly speaking, repentance consists of two parts. One part is contrition, that is terrors, striking the conscience through the knowledge of sin. The other part is faith, which is born of the gospel, or the absolution, and believes that for Christ's sake sins are forgiven. It comforts the conscience and delivers it from terror. Then good works are bound to follow, which are the fruit of repentance. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists, who deny that those who have once been justified can lose the Holy Spirit. They also condemn those who argue that some may reach such a state of perfection in this life that they cannot sin. The Novatians are also condemned, who would not absolve those who had fallen after baptism, though they returned to repentance. Our churches also reject those who do not teach that forgiveness of sins comes through faith, but command us to merit grace through satisfactions of our own. They also reject those who teach that it is necessary to perform works of satisfaction commanded by church law in order to remit eternal punishment or the punishment of purgatory. Article 13. The Use of the Sacraments Our churches teach that the sacraments were ordained not only to be marks of profession among men, but even more, to be signs and testimonies of God's will toward us. They were instituted to awaken and confirm faith in those who used them. Therefore, we must use the sacraments in such a way that faith, which belongs to the promises offered and set forth through the sacraments, is increased. Therefore, they condemn those who teach that the sacraments justify simply by the act of doing them. They condemn those who do not teach that faith, which believes that sins are forgiven, is required in the use of the sacraments. Article 14. Order in the Church. Our churches teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments without a rightly ordered call. Article 15. Church Ceremonies. Our churches teach that ceremonies ought to be observed that may be observed without sin. Also, ceremonies and other practices that are profitable for tranquility and good order in the church, in particular, holy days, festivals, and the likes, ought to be observed. Yet the people are taught that consciences are not to be burdened, as though observing such things was necessary for salvation. They are also taught that human traditions instituted to make atonement with God, to merit grace, and to make satisfaction for sins are opposed to the gospel and the doctrine of faith. So vows and traditions concerning meats and days and so forth, instituted to merit grace and to make satisfaction for sins, are useless and contrary to the gospel. Article 16. Civil Government. Our churches teach that lawful civil regulations are good works of God. They teach that it is right for Christians to hold political office, to serve as judges, 
to judge matters by imperial laws and other existing laws, to impose just judgments, to engage in just wars, to serve as soldiers, to make legal contracts, to hold property, to take oaths when required by the magistrates, for a man to marry a wife or a woman to be given in marriage. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists who forbid these political offices to Christians. They also condemn those who do not locate evangelical perfection in the fear of God and in faith, but place it in forsaking political offices. For the gospel teaches an eternal righteousness of the heart. At the same time, it does not require the destruction of the civil state or of the family. The gospel very much requires that they be preserved as God's ordinances and that love be practiced in such ordinances. Therefore, it is necessary for Christians to be obedient to their rulers and laws. The only exception is when they are commanded to sin. Then they ought to obey God rather than men. Article 17. Christ's Return for Judgment Our churches teach that at the end of the world Christ will appear for judgment and will raise all the dead. He will give the godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joys, but he will condemn ungodly people and the devils to be tormented without end. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists, who think that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils. Our churches also condemn those who are spreading certain Jewish opinions, that before the resurrection of the dead the godly shall take possession of the kingdom of the world, the ungodly being everywhere suppressed. Article 18. Free Will Our churches teach that a person's will has some freedom to choose civil righteousness and do things subject to reason. It has no power, without the Holy Spirit, to work the righteousness of God, that is, spiritual righteousness. For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. This righteousness is worked in the heart when the Holy Spirit is received through the Word. This is what Augustine says in his Hypognostion, Book 3. We grant that all people have a free will. It is free as far as it has the judgment of reason. This does not mean that it is able without God either to begin or at least to complete anything that has to do with God. It is free only in works of this life, whether good or evil. Good I call those works that spring from the good in nature such as willing to labor in the field, to eat and drink, to have a friend, to clothe oneself, to build a house, to marry a wife, to raise cattle, to learn various useful arts, or whatsoever applies to this life. For all of these things depend on the providence of God. They are from Him and exist through Him. Works that are willing to worship an idol, to commit murder, and so forth, I call evil. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who teach that without the Holy Spirit by natural power alone, we are able to love God above all things and to do God's commandments according to the letter. Although nature is able in a certain way to do the outward work, for it is able to keep the hands from the theft and murder, yet it cannot produce the inward motions, such as the fear of God, trust in God, chastity, patience, and so on. Article 19. The Cause of Sin Our churches teach that although God creates and preserves nature, the cause of sin is located in the will of the wicked, that is, 
the devil, and ungodly people. Without God's help, this will turns itself away from God, as Christ says. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Article 20. Good Works Our teachers are falsely accused of forbidding good works. Their published writings on the Ten Commandments and other similar writings bear witness that they have usefully taught about all estates and duties of life. They have taught well what is pleasing to God in every station and vocation in life. Before now, preachers taught very little about these things. They encouraged only childish and needless works, such as particular holy days, particular fasts, brotherhoods, pilgrimages, services in honor of the saints, the use of rosaries, monasticism, and other such things. Since our adversaries have been admonished about these things, they are now unlearning them. They do not preach these unhelpful works as much as they used to. In the past, there was only stunning silence about faith, but now they are beginning to mention it. They do not teach that we are justified only by works. They join faith and works together and say that we are justified by faith and works. This teaching is more tolerable than the former one. It can offer more consolation than their old teaching. The doctrine about faith, which ought to be the chief doctrine in the church, has remained unknown for so long. Everyone has to admit that there was the deepest silence in their sermons concerning the righteousness of faith. They only taught about works in the churches. This is why our teachers teach the churches about faith in this way. First, they teach that our works cannot reconcile God to us or merit forgiveness of sins, grace, and justification. We obtain reconciliation only by faith when we believe that we are received into favor for Christ's sake. He alone has been set forth as the mediator and atoning sacrifice, in order that the Father may be reconciled through him. Therefore, whoever believes that he merits grace by works despises the merit and grace of Christ. In so doing, he is seeking a way to God without Christ, by human strength, although Christ himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. This doctrine about faith is presented everywhere by Paul. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. If anyone wants to be tricky and say that we have invented a new interpretation of Paul, this entire matter is supported by the testimony of the fathers. Augustine defends grace and the righteousness of faith in many volumes against the merits of works. Ambrose, in his book, The Calling of the Gentiles, and elsewhere, teaches the same thing. In The Calling of the Gentiles, he says, Redemption by Christ's blood would be worth very little, and God's mercy would not surpass man's works, if justification, which is accomplished through grace, were due prior merit. So, Justification would not be the free gift from a donor, but the reward due the laborer. Spiritually inexperienced people despise this teaching. However, God-fearing and anxious consciences find by experience that it brings the greatest consolation. Consciences cannot be set at rest through any works but only by faith, when they take the sure ground that for Christ's sake they have a gracious God. As Paul teaches, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This whole doctrine must be related to the conflict of the terrified conscience. It cannot be understood apart from that conflict. 
Therefore, inexperienced and irreverent people have poor judgment in this matter because they dream that Christian righteousness is nothing but civil and philosophical righteousness. Until now, consciences were plagued with the doctrine of works. They did not hear consolation from the gospel. Some people were driven by conscience into the desert and into monasteries, hoping to merit grace by a monastic life. Some people came up with other works to merit grace and make satisfaction for sins. That is why the need was so great for teaching and renewing the doctrine of faith in Christ, so that anxious consciences would not be without consolation, but would know that grace, forgiveness of sins, and justification are received by faith in Christ. People are also warned that the term faith does not mean simply a knowledge of history, such as the ungodly and devil have. Rather, it means a faith that believes not merely the history, but also the effect of the history. In other words, it believes this article, the forgiveness of sins. We have grace, righteousness, and forgiveness of sins through Christ. The person who knows that he has a Father who is gracious to him through Christ truly knows God. He also knows that God cares for him, and he calls upon God. In a word, he is not without God, as are the heathen. For devils and the ungodly are not able to believe this article, the forgiveness of sins. Hence, they hate God as an enemy, and do not call him, and expect no good from him. Augustine also warns his readers about the word faith and teaches that the term is used in the scriptures not for the knowledge that is in the ungodly, but for the confidence that consoles and encourages the terrified mind. Furthermore, we teach that it is necessary to do good works. This does not mean that we merit grace by doing good works, but because it is God's will. It is only by faith and nothing else that forgiveness of sins is apprehended. The Holy Spirit is received through faith, hearts are renewed and given new affections, and then they are able to bring forth good works. Ambrose says, Faith is the mother of a good will and doing what is right. Without the Holy Spirit, people are full of ungodly desires. They are too weak to do works that are good in God's sight. Besides, they are in the power of the devil who pushes human beings into various sins, ungodly opinions, and open crimes. We see this in the philosophers who, although they tried to live an honest life, could not succeed, but were defiled with many open crimes, such as human weakness, without faith and without the Holy Spirit, when governed only by human strength. Therefore, it is easy to see that this doctrine is not to be accused of banning good works. Instead, it is to be commended all the more because it shows how we are enabled to do good works. For without faith, human nature cannot in any way do the works of the first or second commandment. Without faith, human nature does not call upon God, nor expect anything from Him, nor bear the cross. Instead, human nature seeks and trusts in human help. So when there is no faith and trust in God, all kinds of lusts and human intentions rule in the heart. This is why Christ says, Apart from me you can do nothing. That is why the church sings. Lacking your divine favor, there is nothing in man. Nothing in him is harmless.
Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.